Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Amen. That's the greeting, obviously, that we heard just now in the gospel reading. It's what Gabriel the angel speaks to Mary. Can I speak it to you? Can I call you highly favored? Can I tell you that the Lord is with you? I can. I can call you highly favored. No, maybe, sure, if you want to quibble. You're not as highly favored as Mary, who was privileged to be the very mother of God on earth. But when it's God loving you, do you really think that it makes sense to quibble about who is maybe more or less highly favored? And the God who is love, whose love is infinite, whose love is boundless, whose love covers over all our sin, loves you. You're highly favored, whether you're Mary or not. Oh, what about the Lord is with you? Right? Can I say that? Yeah, I can. Not in the same way that it was true of Mary, right, who again had the very word made flesh dwelling in her womb. The Lord might not be with you in that particular way. Might not be. Is not with you in that particular way. And yet Christ promises in his word that wherever two or three gather in his name, gather around his word, there he is with them. When he returned to heaven, he promised the disciples that he would be with them always to the very end of the age. He promised the foregoing that when he went back to heaven, he would send forth the Spirit into our hearts and through the Spirit, he and the Father would come, Jesus says, and make their home within us. These are his promises. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. See, God is a God who keeps his promises, and that's why I can say these things to you. Where God makes you a promise, you can be certain that he'll keep it. When God makes you the promise that in baptism, he washes you clean in his sight, he adopts you into his family, he clothes you with Christ, he defangs sin's power over you, you can trust that he keeps that promise. When he promises that the body, the blood of, of his son Jesus, born at Christmas to have this body and blood which he offered up on the cross for your forgiveness, when he promises that it's here for you, for your comfort, for your strength and assurance once again, you can be sure that he keeps that promise as well. We've been reading these selections from Scripture this morning all about God's promises. And this is what makes God's word so different from ours. The fact that God always keeps his promises, the fact that God speaks a, an infallible word, a word that does not, as he says elsewhere in Scripture, fall to the ground. God's word comes about. It makes God's word very different from our human word, doesn't it? We speak fallible words. We speak fallible, powerless words all the time. We can do it ten times before breakfast if we like. I've promised that I'll get you that report by Monday, boss. Does it always happen? I promise that I'll do those dishes later. Does it always happen? I promise that I'll never leave you. We don't always keep these promises. Our words often fall to the ground, whether that's by our own neglect or by our own powerlessness. 
And we fail to keep our promises and others fail to keep their promises to us. Not so with God. God's word does not fall to the ground. God's word is powerful. In fact, God's word is so powerful, it's what he used to speak the universe into existence. What God says happens. And so when he makes a promise, it is the fact that he spoke it, which guarantees its fulfillment. How do we guarantee that we'll fulfill a promise? Well, we're just careful about our words, right? We don't overpromise. We don't overcommit. Christians are encouraged to think carefully, thoughtfully about the kinds of things we commit ourselves to, not because we don't want to get involved in other people's lives. We do, but because we want to be frank about our own shortcomings, sinfulness as people. And so throughout the scriptures, we hear warnings of people, don't overpromise to count the cost of any commitment that you're going to make. The scriptures are very frank about the fact that we cannot always keep our promises. We often fail to keep our promises. And because we want to reflect the character of a God who always keeps his promises, we're careful about making promises that we know we're not going to be able to keep. God doesn't have to worry about the same things. God doesn't have to worry whether he's overcommitted God doesn't have to go and check the calendar that he keeps on his wall to see, oh, did I put something else in there? Right? I'm telling them that they'll go, I'll go out to lunch, but uh, it's not going to work. I'm telling them that I'll, I'll be there that day, but oh no, there's something else on the calendar. God can't overcommit. God can't overpromise. What God promises, he carries out. In the words of God that the angel Gabriel brought to Mary this morning, which was such a, an incredible event. Can you even imagine being in Mary's shoes? Hearing these promises spoken by God. In that word, God speaks about four impossible things that are going to take place through the power of his word. An everlasting, a, an unending kingdom will be established. A menopausal woman is going to have a baby. A virgin will become pregnant and people will believe all these things. The first one, a never-ending kingdom, is something that the angel Gabriel promises will be brought about by this baby to Mary. No such thing has ever existed in our world. A never-ending kingdom is, is not something that we can see in this world. People make careers all over the, the world, all through time, of, of digging up the the ancient buried ruins of kingdoms that have fallen. All over the world and at the bottom of oceans, there are mighty warships bearing the flags of empires that no longer exist in the lands from which those ships once set sail. Human kingdoms don't last forever. They rise and they fall. We always want human kingdoms to last longer than they do, though. When... When you live in a time when a kingdom is declining or rising, it's a time of tumult. It's a time of confusion and difficulty. All throughout history, this is the case. With decline in powers come wars, turmoil, hardship. And so we don't want to see kingdoms come to their end. We, we want things to continue. We want them to, to stay and remain. We want things to stay as they are. 
whether that's in kingdoms of the world or even in our own lives. We want the things that we as humans create to last forever. God had made this promise about an unending kingdom before. We heard it in the words that we spoke or that we read first this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's where God speaks to David and says, David, your descendant, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of an everlasting kingdom. Amen. But by the time of Jesus, for several hundred years at that time, no Davidic king had been sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. For several hundred years at this point, the Jews had been ruled over by other nations, by the Greeks, now by the Romans. The man who currently sat on the throne calling himself king of the Jews, Herod, was not a member of David's family, was not truly a king in the line which God had promised would last forever. When Gabriel announced this message to Mary, repeating that promise that had been given to David so long ago, it seemed that this word from God had fallen to the ground. It seemed that God had not kept this promise. But the Jews knew that God was a God who kept promises. And that was why, even as Mary was getting this message from the angel Gabriel all around Israel, there were people who were talking about and wondering when God would finally send the Messiah, when God would keep this promise, because God always keeps his promises. That was something that they knew. And they were looking for this Messiah, for the consolation of Israel to come. Gabriel's message to Mary revealed that her baby would be that Messiah. But Gabriel left a little something out of his message to Mary, left it out. He wasn't told to bring this message to Mary. What is the nature of this kingdom going to be, this everlasting kingdom? And it seems that Mary indeed did later on in life become confused about what exactly the the mission, the nature of this kingdom which her son had been called to establish would be. She was confused by his mission. She and Jesus' brothers and sisters at times tried to take him home to talk some sense into him because he was doing weird things, strange things. Certainly if Mary had understood what the kingdom of Jesus was supposed to be, she would have understood what this was. It's unfortunate that seemingly by the time Jesus was an adult and carrying out his public ministry, Joseph, his stepfather, we might call Joseph, had died. Because in the announcement that Joseph is given about the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, God very clearly explains to Joseph what the kingdom, the government of Jesus would be when Joseph is told that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Now that's something that distinguishes, that's the thing in fact, that distinguishes the government, the kingdom of Jesus from governments and kingdoms of the world. Governments and kingdoms of the world are called by God to protect the bodily well-being of the people under their power. And that's really it. And so that leaves a lot of room open for what you would call differences in philosophies about government, in approaches to governing. So long as a government carries out that essential function to which God calls them, protecting the bodily well-being of their citizens, that that government is doing what God intends for it to do. That's not the job of Jesus' kingdom, of Jesus in his kingdom, of the those who serve in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom, again, as was explained to Joseph, very simply is 
exists to save people from their sins. Jesus' kingdom does not exist to preserve the the bodily well-being of the people within it, but to preserve and promote their spiritual well-being. Jesus' kingdom is the Christian church. The church which existed in the Old Testament as they looked ahead to the Messiah. The church that exists in the New Testament as we look back to the Christ. The same word, Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, God's chosen Savior. If we call it the Christian church in the Old Testament, it's totally appropriate. They were looking to the Christ, the Messiah. If we call it the Messianic church in the New Testament, that's fine, it's appropriate. We're looking back to the Christ, the Messiah. That kingdom is where God's powerful word about our sin and about forgiveness in Jesus, the messages of law and gospel are proclaimed. And wherever we find that message being proclaimed, there we find Jesus' kingdom. And this is why Jesus' kingdom can last forever, why it's an unending kingdom unlike the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world require physical force to do their job, right? they, to, to protect the bodily well-being of people under their lives. They need police officers. They need money. They need these things. And so when a, a kingdom of the world has its treasuries run down, when a kingdom of the world has its strength sapped by a war, or there's just simply not enough people in this kingdom, it falls. But God's kingdom is not dependent on such factors. The only thing that God's kingdom needs to do its work is the word of Jesus, the gospel message. And that allows the kingdom of Jesus to stand firm forever, to exist forever, to not rise and fall as worldly kingdoms do, but instead to be everlasting, to be unending. Worldly kingdoms, again, their job is to supervise, protect, whatever you want to call it, bodily well-being. Worldly kingdoms have power over bodies in this life. The next two impossible things that God makes happen through his word to Mary, though they are miracles over bodies. What God is showing by doing this then as he speaks first about an unending kingdom and then about these miracles that will happen to bodies is showing that although he delegates a certain level of authority over our bodily lives to kingdoms in this world, he is ultimately the one in charge. He ultimately has the final say in what happens to us, for us, with us, what goes on in our lives. The first bodily miracle that occurs, Mary has this relative, maybe an aunt, maybe an older cousin. We're not exactly sure what the relationship is, named Elizabeth. And we heard about her and her husband, Zechariah, last week. They're older. We're never told precisely how old in the Bible Zechariah and Elizabeth are, but the vocabulary that the Bible uses around them gives us the impression that they are older. It's used generally of people who are in their 60s and onward. Zechariah and Elizabeth have never had children. But what God promised them, as we heard last week, when we talked about John the Baptist, when he also sent the angel Gabriel to them to announce this a, a miraculous birth, was that they would have a son. And that took place. As Gabriel is speaking to Mary, he tells her, look, Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. A miracle in and of itself What'll be even more miraculous is for her to give birth to a healthy child. 
God had worked this kind of miracle before on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, for instance, were 100 years old and 90 years old, respectively, when they finally saw their son Isaac born. Or we could think perhaps about Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who remained childless for a number of years in her marriage before finally the prophet Samuel was born to her. Now, Hannah was not old as Elizabeth or as Sarah were, and yet the birth was no the less miraculous for that, even if it wasn't so clear, right? Both the births of Isaac, of John, of Samuel, all came about in the natural way, husband and wife coming together to produce a child, and yet God's hand was at work in all those, God's powerful word bringing about all those births. And frankly, when we start talking about the beginning of new life, it's hard to draw a sharp line between natural and miraculous because God speaks about life in the womb as something that he personally creates, that he takes a hand in shaping, whether it's by what we would call miraculous means or by what we would call natural means. God says he's the one at work there. Sarah, though, and Elizabeth as well, John's mother, even if we're going to quibble about natural, miraculous, we have to admit these are miraculous births. The normal biological means by which God creates new life had ceased for both of these women. They were menopausal. They were past the childbearing age. There's no normal biological mechanism by which they could have become pregnant. Again, they conceived in the natural way, husband and wife coming together, but it was God's powerful word which gave life to Isaac, to John, these two boys born by promise 2,000 years apart. God's word brought about something impossible. Mary's case shows us the impossibility even more clearly though, right? You, you could still perhaps, okay, maybe there's some weird biological mechanism with, that we're not aware of by which someone could conceive after menopause. Mary was a virgin, we're told. In Greek, her reply to, to uh, the angel Gabriel is even more pointed than we kind of get in the English translation here. What really Mary, Mary says something almost like, I've never even messed around. I, I've done absolutely nothing that could result in this, Mary says. Her, her entire life up to that point, not only was she not married, was she yet a virgin, she had been entirely chaste, is her reply to the angel Gabriel. There's no, no contact whatsoever, Mary tells the angel, that could possibly explain this. So Mary's situation raises, I'd call some interesting questions around what maybe we today would call consent. Step back from the, the situation as we sort of know it, right? The Bible story and think, think about, you've got this young woman whom God just sort of takes and makes this enormous change in her life to her physical body without consulting with her first. How would we feel about such a thing? How should we feel about such a God? It's a fair question. We could ask Mary how she felt. She wouldn't be able to answer us directly. We can't ask her now. She lived 2,000 years ago. But her thoughts are recorded in the scriptures. She rejoices. When she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth and to share her news, Mary bursts into song later in this chapter of Luke, and we call her spur-of-the-moment song of praise, the Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy 
is his name. Those are Mary's feelings about this. She feels joy. She feels gratitude to God. If we have a different reaction to what occurred to Mary, if, if we think differently about it, or if we think that Mary should have felt differently about it, right? Maybe we ought to ask ourselves why. Well, because Mary didn't have the same sort of modern notions that we have about autonomy and independence and self-determination. And so we can tell her how she should have felt, is what that boils down to. As C.S. Lewis would call such attitudes chronological snobbery. The idea that just because I live later than someone else, my thoughts about something are better than theirs. My judgments of a situation are, are better than theirs. I can speak to how they ought to have felt and thought and acted at such and such a time. Sure, we may, we may very well look back at the past and find things there at times that we can criticize, object to, point out would be wrong. You ever stop and think that the people of the past can look at us in the same way? They just don't have the opportunity to do so. God does. God has the opportunity to look at not just us, not just the people of the past, the people of the future as well, everyone who will ever live on this earth. God, outside of time, gets to consider us all on one level playing field. And when he does so, the standard that he sets forth by which he can evaluate all people of all time is not, well, you know, how were you, what, were your thoughts, were your actions, were your words in better or worse relative contrast to the people who lived before you, your contemporaries, after you? No. The standard by which God can, does, will evaluate all people of all time is his own unchanging word, his word that stands firm forever. Jesus, during his ministry, summarized the standard by which God judges all people of all time, quite simply. While on earth, Jesus said, this is the entire law summed up. Love God above all things. Love your neighbor at all times. chronological snobbery, right? looking at yourself as just sort of better than other people who happen to have lived in the past, or even looking at your contemporaries and thinking, well, at least I'm not them. That kind of thinking gets you absolutely nowhere in the judgment, the evaluation, the eyes of God. You need to find something else. You need to find what Mary had. That's the fourth impossible thing that God's word to Mary works. Faith. Mary believes. Mary trusts God. That's what she expresses at the end. May, the, may everything you've said to me come true. That's faith at work being expressed. Her song of praise, the Magnificat that she sings in the presence of her relative Elizabeth, that's faith being expressed. Trusting in God rather than herself looking at whatever it is that God wants to do, how much change it's going to require in our lives, how, many th how, much, how uncomfortable it might make us. May everything you have said about me come true. That's what Mary says. We don't get to tell her that was right, wrong. We know what it was. It was faith. Worked by God. See, that's, that's the key thing. When God makes a promise, that's what creates faith. 
in our hearts. When God makes the promise to us that he sent this, this baby born in Mary's womb to be our forgiveness, to provide us with new life, to reconcile us to him, that's the message, that gospel message that creates faith in our hearts. That gives us the response that Mary had, a response that acknowledges God's power over us, our lives, our bodies, and doesn't fear him. Instead, trusts him, recognizes that he loves us, that he's not going to hurt us. Even when he exercises his power over us, he doesn't do it like humans do. He does it for our good. He does it to bring about our salvation, to bring us into his family, to welcome us into his kingdom, to seat us at his table. Faith is miraculous. Faith is an impossible thing. God's word works impossible things. By the word of God, by the gospel message, faith has been brought to life in your hearts. And when faith is brought to life in your heart, you see, like Mary did, you see God's good hand at work in all things. You see him doing the impossible, keeping you safe each and every day, protecting you from the things that would threaten and harm you, defanging sin's power over you, uniting you with other believers, God doing these impossible things for your good. Friends, you are highly favored. The Lord is indeed with you. Amen.